Welcome to Premium Cashflow Real Estate Investing Podcast with Sakar Kali. During this program, you will hear guest experts sharing their experiences, best practices, and market insights. We discuss investing in multifamily apartment complexes and how a busy professional can passively invest hassle-free in various opportunities. Your host, Sakar Kali, owns millions of dollars of assets and has done thousands of value-add projects over 20 years now. So listen in for insights. Here's your host, Sakar Kali. Welcome to another edition of Premium Cashflow Podcast. Today I have a very young investor, uh, Mr. Phil Capron. Uh, Phil, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here. Sure. Uh, so Phil is based in Virginia Beach and he has his assets uh, in Norfolk uh, and also Richmond. So spanning across 200 units and with a few units that he has under contract, he will soon be a owner of 300 units. So that's that's freaking awesome, Phil. <laughs> Thanks. We, we're, we're all trying to be like you. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, so here we go, Phil. Uh, I appreciate your time. So, Phil, uh, do you want to give us uh, some like a brief background of uh, you know how your investing uh, journey started and where you are at now? Sure. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of deja entendu, like uh, you hear all the time with people. You know, you start off in single family and then beat your head against the wall for a little while, and then think that there's got to be a better way. And you've been reading about apartments for a while. And then uh, in my case, just the right opportunity came about. It was sort of right place, right time. Um, stars aligned. So I was able to get a small building on my own, um, 14plex. And then uh, it, it sort of, it proved concept to me and let me know that in, it, it wasn't just other people that could do this, that I could also do it. Um, you know, it took years and years to do that first big step. Um, but then since that, I've kind of, kind of hit the ground running. The next acquisition was 109 and then we just closed on 82. So I've not done that many deals. Um, but I do have a nice, um, you know, a nice growing portfolio that I'm proud of. So right, I want right, to right. keep the momentum going and, um, you know, everyone started somewhere. I remember how it was looking for my first flip and, you know, being a residential real estate agent and, you know, people, people work hard, but, uh, if you commit to, to studying and to being in the right circles and to listening to podcasts like this one and engaging, um, there's no reason why um, you can't do what I'm doing, um, what we're doing, you know, because we're just, we're regular people too. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think w what you said, Phil, that is very valuable because I think once you do the first deal, especially the second deal, and you have that traction and momentum around you, I think brokers, community, your investors around you start to recognize that, oh, yes, he's very knowledgeable, very much credible in terms of, you know, how you're doing your operations and things like that. And once that momentum builds up, uh, I think it's, it's, that's, I think that's really awesome for your career that you start to, you know, open doors that like never, you know, opened, like brokers will take you seriously. You will start to see those off market deals and things like that. And it's, it's almost like, you know, floodgates opened up. <laughs> Would you agree, Phil? It's an, it's, it's a totally different world. And we, you know, we we're kind of talking about this before we got going here. It's what came first, the chicken or the egg, right? Mm -hmm. Nobody will take you seriously until you own a bunch of units. 
Right. But you can't right. own a bunch of units until somebody takes you seriously. Right. So that's right. the catch 22. And right. uh, the way that I, you know, addressed that was um, I surrounded myself and I still do with people that are better than me. Absolutely. In every way. So right. what that means to me or what that's going to mean to a broker or a seller, if you're out shopping is somebody with some units, somebody that can speak the lingo. Um, you know, I, have been educating myself for years and years, but uh, until you've done it, you, you don't, you don't, it's just not the same. Right. right. Um, but then also balance sheet, you know, you're going to want somebody with, you know, a nice balance sheet that if you're asked, you can show, sure. um, you know, letters from, from the bank, you know, showing who you're partnering with on property management, who your closing attorney is, who your contractor is and how you can solve various problems. The more you surround yourself by folks who can, you know, boo you, mm -hmm. um, support you in mm -hmm. areas which you, it just might not be your, your specialty or that you're just not that strong. Right. right. Together so, you can accomplish a lot. Right. Right. So let me ask you a related question on that, Phil, uh, is that, uh, you know, when we make the initial offer, like a letter of intent, the LOI, as we call it, right? So these LOIs are pretty much was I call it like an open, open-ended book. Like people will write just a simple one page, uh, you know, LOI defining, you know, the basic terms and things like that. And there are other investors where we've seen LOIs that are pretty extensive in terms of defining their team, which are the different aspects, how their motivation is and how they're going to manage their buildings and things like that. And since, you know, you were saying about your different teams and things like that, can you maybe share, Phil, that how you go about writing your LOIs, what different things you uh, write and do you describe your team in your LOI and things like that? Can you maybe share how you go about it? That is a fantastic question um, because a lot of people do just do the bare minimum and then you're allowing the seller and the broker, if they don't have a good relationship with you or if they don't know you, even if they do, um, you pass that on to a seller and they're looking for a couple of things. They're looking at how much are you paying me? How long are you going to take? What areas can you retrade me or weasel your way out of this contract? Basically, right. that's what the seller is looking for. You want to paint a picture for these folks. Um, you know, price is a huge thing, but people do business with those they know, like, and trust or can relate to. So I absolutely submit, always submit my own personal bio that has not only real estate stuff, but some other, you know, kind of points in there that, that try to bridge the gap between myself and a broker or myself and a seller, um, to build a little bit of rapport, even though we've never met. Mm -hmm. Um, and then depending on the nature of the project, I absolutely will include key team members. So if it's a heavy reposition value add, which is the types of deals I like to do, by the way. Um, yeah, this is my class, a contractor, you know, he's been very successful. He owns hundreds of units in his own right. He commanded hundreds of troops in the army before starting his contracting business. This mm -hmm. is my guy. This is my lawyer. You know, he worked for one of the biggest developers in the country as, you know, private counsel. This is, um, you know, my asset manager who is a property manager by trade and, you know, runs hundreds of units in California and, you know, brings really interesting ideas to any new market after working in California where it's very tenant friendly. Um, so 
the, the bottom and sort of the, the key to, to this whole business, in my opinion, is how are you solving the seller and the broker's problems? If you can give them a, a taste of that and your LOI, you're going to be head and shoulders above the competition that just wrote your, your minimum one pager. Any way awesome. they can understand you or more importantly, see how you're going to solve their problem is going to be an advantage to you. So it's going to be different from everyone because you've got different skills and, um, you know, value proposition that you're bringing to the transaction than I do. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think those words are like really gold there, uh, Phil, because I think what we have to imagine as buyers is that you've got to put yourself in seller's shoes that he's owning a, uh, you know, like a distressed asset, as you uh, said, Phil, is that he's looking for not only to sell, but at the same time, have that conviction in this buyer that, or does this buyer have a track record of fixing, uh, you know, like a successful track record of fixing buildings uh, with some like major deferred maintenance issues, you know? And if they don't see that versus, you know, some other offer that they'll see that, oh, I see this other, uh, you know, XYZ buyer that has, you know, a strong record of rehabbing buildings and done successful projects. They, I mean, it's it's a given that they're going to choose the other uh, buyer's contract, you know, or rather the LOI at that point. So that that's that's very well said there. And now speaking of uh, you know different markets and submarkets, uh, Phil, uh, what is your process of uh, you know sort of going about evaluating deals or going towards a uh, or gravitating towards a submarket? How do you go about that? So. Yeah, I mentioned that I'd been studying multifamily and buy and hold real estate for quite some time before I actually took the leap. So I got started in my backyard. It's what makes sense to me. Um, in some, a lot of people are going to probably take this the wrong way, and I guess I'm not sorry. Here goes. Um, I get sent a lot of deals. I'm sure you get sent a lot of deals as well just because mm -hmm. you know we're out here and, and sort of public about what it is that we're doing because we're proud of our business and you know, we enjoy it. That's why we do it. Um, right. You know, but people from... Say, and honestly, Phil, uh, sorry to interject, but I know some, uh, you know, operators who are adamant about doing deals locally. They do not go beyond a one or a two uh, hours driving circle. That, and that's all they do. And I And these are large players. So, you know, these are players, you know, owning... 600 700 million dollar portfolios and that's all they do so what you describe is not not at all a, a natural actually this is a i mean it, it basically comes down to core preference and how you want to operate the business so there's there's i think multiple ways of being right as i call it so well everyone's, everyone's doing a different thing i'm i'm sure. really glad that you mentioned that so i'm just trying to figure out an example here that makes sense so sure. if you're in new york chances mm -hmm. are you're mm -hmm. not buying midtown manhattan mm -hmm. okay? mm -hmm. So you're calling me from Manhattan and saying, hey, I've got this great deal in Tennessee. They sent it just to me and we got to go look at it and this, that, and the other thing. Really? They sent it just to you? Or did everyone that's actually in Tennessee say no? Mm -hmm. And they're looking at you as the out-of-state guy who's going to come in and overpay. The mm -hmm. out-of-state guy who doesn't have the property management contacts or the contractors. All of that can be overcome, obviously. I've you know, friends that are, have thousands of units that are investing primarily out of state. And that works for them. What I'm saying is if you're 
really looking to maximize your ROI by understanding what you, where you are and what you're doing, mm-hmm. it's probably going to be your backyard. And that's, so it was the lowest barrier to entry for me to get started, but also I understood it. So when a 109 unit portfolio came down the pipe and I saw it at a good trigger point, mm-hmm. even though I didn't really have the means to do this transaction on my own, I started looking into it and was able to create a deal where there wasn't one. If you saw it on LoopNet, you'd be like, ah, no deal. But I was able to create the deal because I understand that sub-market. Just for a, a real quick example, one of the buildings was a, a, is a 30plex and um, the in-place rents were $550. I have a house down the street from there. I know that they should be more. So we ended up you know, purchasing it and I said, okay, we're going to go in, we're going to do you know, vinyl plank flooring, we're going to do, you know, paint, paint the cabinets, new appliances as needed, new vanities, pretty low level stuff, two-tone paint, ceiling fans, you know, low, not a complete reno, maybe on a 750 square foot unit, 4,000 a unit, just for some scale for everyone out there. Um, and I pro forma that we could do 625, I thought was about right for wow. the one bedroom, one bath. Mm-hmm. We've, we've, turned 10 of the 30 so far um, under that renovation scheme Mm -hmm. and they've flown off the shelf at 700. Wow. Less than a week market time and a $35 a month utility charge. So from 550 to 735, what's that do for the value of your building? Big one. Somebody with a calculator, go figure it out. Let me know. Um, It's a lot. And then (laughs) the ones that we haven't churned yet, I think Mm -hmm. we've had four whose leases have renewed. And they mm-hmm. just went ahead and paid the 735 without us doing a thing. Wow. That's the power of knowing your submarket. We're adding, I mean, 30, 40% value wow. of that building between the top line increases that I just described and also mm-hmm. the reduction in expenses mm-hmm. for you know superior management than what was currently in place. Right. I don't think you can fly across the country and just expect somebody that you hired out of the you know Google to do those kind of things for you on the contracting side and on the PM side. So that's why I'm of the opinion that you should be a little bit more hyper-focused on where you are or an hour away or two hours away, your backyard. Um, I'm currently looking for a primary secondary market, oxymoron there, but I would like to have a couple other markets now that I feel like I've got coastal Virginia kind of cornered as far as not that I own a ton of units or anything, but, when something comes across my desk, I know exactly what it is before right, I even. Right. You, really you are an expert uh, in that market, and if something comes along, you you have that expertise that you can hit the ground running right away. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. So I'm looking. I'm looking for a couple others to dive into because I'm a professional. This is what I do. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're calling me from Manhattan and you know you're working your nine to five, and you're like, "Oh, I got this great 200 unit deal in Tennessee," I'm probably going to raise an eyebrow because. Right. Chances are everyone who's, you know, in that market. anything in that market has already turned it down. So I, I don't, I'm not trying to buy deals just for the sake of buying deals. Right, right. And, and there's something to be said about, uh, you, you know, like knowing the pulse of the market 
the class of deals that come along and you know you know those neighborhoods what goes on and the class of tenants that you bring in uh, into your buildings so you got to know all those characteristics and the culture that goes along in these uh, you know apartment complexes and you should have that sort of tolerance and the muscle to deal with those issues and you know have those strong property management in place to you know work through those issues and you cannot expect as you say rightfully said there Phil to have someone you know externally uh, as a property manager to do it and and more importantly I would like to highlight that you renovated some units but at the same time what was powerful that you said which was actually personally enlightening to me is also is that when the lease is renewed for the existing tenants you pretty much told them that hey this is the rent a going rent that we are doing and look we successfully have rented these other units at this higher rate so without even touching those vintage units you already increase their rents just like that that is extremely powerful it awesome. is and, and awesome. that's that's about knowing your knowing your market there's a lot of you know, OMs that you're going to look at from LoopNet or, you know, mm -hmm. somebody sending you something pre-market mm -hmm. that make these assumptions and that you just, you need to understand whether or not they're based in reality. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I hope listeners are making a note of it because if someone is taking notes, I can tell you that they would easily add 500 to a million dollars to their portfolio just like that just like that by just doing nothing but just implementing based on what you just said. And it's pretty powerful what you said. <laughs> should, should I give my PayPal email address? Absolutely. One, you should. 1%. One, 1 for Absolutely. <laughs> you should get your PayPal address right and share with the viewers. <laughs> Man, that would be a good racket. Absolutely. That, that would be a good affiliate business, right? Absolutely. But anyways, moving on, Phil. Sure. Um, please share with us, like, uh, sort of what value-add strategies you do, like, you know, whether it's renovations or, you know, like exterior improvements and things like that. Would you share maybe your favorite ways uh, as to, you know, what things you've done and what you find, like, most bang for your buck? Cool. Let me think of a couple of my favorites, and then I'll try to tr illustrate them with a couple of examples that we've done. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, so exterior improvements that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. The issue with those it's it's so funny the catch 22 that exists there if you don't do enough of them then you have a crappy building that people don't want to rent so you're leaving money on the table but when you bring it up to what's expected for you know your your sub market there or what you know tenants are comparable to the competition you're not really adding any rent it's just something that you have to do so as operators, we're like, oh, we've got to redo the siding or the roof or, you know, um, the garage door openers. But that's not getting us any more rent. It's just making sure that we're, you know, going to stay full, which is really important. Um, but where, where I love, where I spend most of my time, I just, I have my contract say, hey, what do, what do, what do I have to do to get this thing up to snuff here? And, um, and we do it. But then on the inside, I really like solid surface surface floors. Um, on the bottom level, we'll either do tile or like a like a LVT um, vinyl plank kind of kind of deal. Whatever we can, we've experimented with a few different few different vendors, a few different product types, and and we're still experimenting. Mm -hmm. But um, what I like about that is it gives a little bit of more of a 
luxury look. Mm-hmm. Some people are, are not, are not going to like not having their carpet. And, and we're still doing um, carpet in the bedrooms on our units that are in decent areas, decent tenant class. Sure. Um, the areas that are lower, we're doing solid surface throughout. Mm-hmm. So in the event of an eviction or a skip or just a regular turn, mm-hmm. it's a sweep and a mop. You know, if you're putting in a couple hundred dollars of carpet mm-hmm. every time you have a turn because, you know, the people were smoking or they had a, an animal or mm-hmm. an animal they weren't supposed to, it really adds up and it could cost you another week maybe mm-hmm. um, to get that new carpet installed when if it's just a simple, clean, sweet mop, you have that thing turned in a couple of days. Sure. sure. And also the solid surface is going to last for a lot longer. So unless the market is telling you, you cannot do that. People are going to hate it. I like doing that. Um, granite, you mentioned you do in a lot of your units, even your lower income. It's cheap. It's cheap. I mean, and and it's going to last a little longer. Um, you're taking the worst of it with your undermount sink and you know, the the other kind of, as you peel the onions, sort of speak, the other tasks that come up when you do do granite, but it's nice. And, um, and lastly, I think um, having a nicely staged unit, just do it once. Make one of those, those units to the nines. Put in the new ceiling fans and the brush nickel and the two-tone paint. Have a professional stager stage it, professional photographer photograph it. That is your Zillow, your apartments.com, your, and for the- your Craigslist ad that will help the phone to ring. Awesome. Um, as far as solving problems to add value, you know, one of my complexes that's uh, duplexes on like the same kind of piece of property, six foot privacy fences, as well as the solid surface flooring. So people can have large dogs. Mm-hmm. We are in a military community here. Um, sure. And a lot of people have large dogs. A lot of buildings don't allow dogs over 25 pounds mm-hmm. or 50 pounds. So I've found that I can get you know, on an $800 a month rental, two bedroom, one bath, I can maybe make it nine. Awesome. Yeah. And I'm not calling it pent rent. I'm just saying we will allow it. I'm not saying to let in like, you know, rabid pit bulls or anything or, right. you know, something that you think could be health, uh, safety. Right. <clears throat> but, uh, you know, yeah, like we, we got that money back real quick on, in some really quality tenants that don't want to go anywhere because their options are limited. Right, right, right. And, you know, as you said, like providing those hard surfaces, having, you know, like high security fences and things like that, that that helps improve the security in general and just the feeling amongst the tenants that, hey, this landlord really cares for, you know, everything that we do, you know. Do you want to hear a fun security story? Absolutely. Please. You're going to love what this is going to do to our NOI too. So... One of the Anything re- that makes money to, to you want to hear about it? Like absolutely, <laughs> everybody's all ears. <laughs> okay, cool. Most of the people aren't going to care about this tip because they're not going to stick their toe in this kind of water like I did. But um, mm-hmm. one of the buildings we bought in Richmond, it's a D. It's it's a solid. It's it's a D. It's bad. I mean, um, you can set your calendar pretty much monthly. There's murders down the street at the oh wow the government housing. So mm-hmm. you know, when I first went in there. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the first stop I made was to talk to the police to kind of see what the deal was. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, I established it was going to be a good deal, but a complicated deal. So a lot of people are not going to go this route, nor should mm-hmm. you, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, 
we got under contract and I, you know, I called down to the, the precinct and talked to the officer in charge and said, sir, you know, we're going to be an apartment owner in, in your precinct, but we don't want it to be the way that it is. We don't want open air drug markets. We don't want burglaries and assaults and we want to, we want to help. How, how can we help? And so we talked about it for a little while. What I decided to do is the unit that's currently a storage shed for the maintenance men, we're making it an area that our managers can drop in, sign leases, do work orders, put eyes on, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But we're also going to put a couch, a desk, a TV, an Xbox, a coffee pot, and a refrigerator full of whatever they want, mm-hmm. key code access to all of the beat cops that patrol that neighborhood. So instead oh. of sitting in their car and doing reports, mm-hmm. they can come in, kick their feet up, have Wi-Fi, have a cup of coffee. And if they have to go 200 yards down the street to the government housing project, they're already pretty much there. In the meantime, a cruiser is sitting in front, right in the center of my complex. Absolutely. Like talk about having a police car pulling into your, your, your complex and, you know, yeah. having that presence and, you know, whichever are the, you know, the bad actors, they, they're going to just run away like crickets. They're going to they're go, go away. So we took it one step further. I mm-hmm. said, sir, I would like to do a security camera and give you a system on mm-hmm. my buildings and allow you to have access in case something happens, you can go in and, and have evidence and yada, yada. What that evolved into was, hey, we're gonna give you about $25,000 worth of infrastructure um, in cameras and we're gonna actually, the city is now gonna pay to install them on the city-owned light poles. They're gonna run power, they're gonna run internet and the feed goes right to downtown police headquarters. I don't even have to touch it. I'm right. just making a donation. So. Wow. They've got cameras that are going to see who's coming by. It's a you know fairly highly trafficked road, mm-hmm. and uh, you know basically they're telling me if we would have had this, we would have been able to solve crimes because we would have known who was leaving the neighborhood. Right, Chiching, you just yeah. you know, I just yeah. heard the money ring. <laughs> so, so that that I I was budgeting that we were going to spend about ten thousand in utilities every year to administrate this camera system. Mm-hmm. So at an eight cap, what's that? One hundred twenty-five thousand dollars in value. Yep. Add to my building and ten thousand opex I'm saving every year. That's mm-hmm. awesome. But right. in order for these cameras to see, there's a bunch of big trees, and mm-hmm. uh, that line the line the the one street that we we want to take a look at the most. And I'm out there with the property manager, and I said, "Oh man, you know I've got ten thousand in the budget to remove these trees. Contractor, is this going to be enough? Eh, it's probably going to be closer to twelve to fifteen. All right, well let's get it done." And the property manager says, bad news, Phil. They're on the outside of the sidewalk. That's city property. I said, oh, that's great news. I'm just going to call the LP. Yep. And so <laughs> one of my partners just called. They're being chopped down as we speak. Yep, so absolutely. Yeah. 50,000 in landscaping. If, 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 it, so, if it's not your property, it's, you know, yeah. if it's more city's property, you can just call the hotline and get it done, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, they wouldn't do it if we didn't need the line of sight for the cameras for the police to use. Right. Right, so, right. so there's that a win-win is, there. <laughs> I cannot wait to see what the difference in the crime report is from the summer of 2018 mm-hmm. to the summer of 2019 when we've gone in and you know worked our renovation plan, removed the bad actors, and made it you know a, a nice place for lower-income people to live. I mean, the vast majority they're not bad people; they're just regular old people working a job and, and trying right. to do the best they can. Right. But right. when you got people in there that, that are doing bad things, it makes it hard to live your life and right. we're making it easier for them. 
Right, right. And I can speak to this also, Phil, based on, uh, you know, some of the experiences that I had. Anytime you do some of the security things, whether it's just security doors or electronically operated security doors, cameras and things of that nature, my God, like the other tenants who are at the receiving end of this, that for no, uh, you know, uh, uh, fault of their own, they are in the other units. They appreciate it so much that they, I mean, uh, I wouldn't be surprised that your, you know, occupancy is going to go up and you'll have a, just a whole lot more positive experience. This is such a huge win-win. Awesome. Awesome. It is. So, I'm, st- I'm stoked about that. So that's one of them. That's my creative tip as to how you can can create improvements that awesome, boost awesome. revenue, but also everything that you just talked about. Yep, yep. I, I, I mean, those, those are really valuable experiences that you shared, uh, Phil. Uh, speaking of these uh, syndications and joint ventures, uh, Phil, so you shared earlier that uh, most of your deals that you do uh, are you know, in a joint venture and you are looking at syndications uh, also. But uh, can you maybe share like why would someone prefer a joint venture model versus going down the syndication route? Could you maybe share your thoughts on that? Absolutely. So there's no right or wrong. It's just what's right for you. Um, and what's right for you depends on where you're, where you're going. Um, we talked about it. We, you know, we touched on it a couple of times throughout, throughout the, uh, the session. But people that are looking for different things within the marketplace, when I'm talking to a new broker and they ask me what my criteria, you know, what I'm looking for, basically, they say if it qualifies for agency debt, aka it's in good shape, 90% mm-hmm. occupied, hits other core metrics, don't send it to me. Right. Because there's a million syndicators out there right now that are paying top dollar, in my opinion, a lot of the cases too much mm-hmm. for those types of assets. We all know that we're towards the top of a market. Maybe not exactly at the top, but towards the top. Mm-hmm. So the deals that I'm doing, if I can't add massive value, 30, 40, 50% to the NOI, mm-hmm. I sort of don't want to do them. So the deals that, that I'm attracted to are the ones that everyone else is, is missing. The ones that don't have the property management relationships, the, um, you know, the contracting relationships, and the appetite to go solve big problems. Um, you know, so if you're like me, that you're trying to zig when everyone else is zagging, um, going for all the big and clean stuff and Mm -hmm. syndicating and eking out, you know, a little, a little cash for yourself and, Mm -hmm. you know, nice return for your investors. If you're trying to add massive value and completely reposition stuff and on smaller deals, joint venture is something that you, you should consider. Um, and the difference for, I'm not an attorney, so don't, you know. Don't, don't take everything is, is absolute gospel, but, um, you know, syndication is, is a filing through the securities and exchange commission. You're basically selling shares of a particular project, um, mm-hmm. to put it in layman's speak, a joint venture, you, me, a couple other buddies, we're all putting in our time, expertise and capital to make this deal work. So a way an attorney explained to me one time is if someone gives you money and is counting on you solely for their return, that's syndication. That is a limited passive investor. But if that person is doing something, AKA the contracting, the property management, mm-hmm. helping with the books, helping plan the project, helping with the due diligence, mm-hmm. they're actively involved in the success of that, pro- that project. They're using their own money and therefore can be 
um, structured as a joint venture partnership. I see. So when you're structuring these joint uh, ventures, so for that very thing that you just said that they have some shape or form, some active duty involved uh, in the uh, whole operation of the project, Mm -hmm. whether it's on a limited basis, you're looking at the books or just reviewing some reports and things like that. However soft that is, those are sort of the, uh, you know, inherent requirements uh, for a joint venture to be defined as a joint venture technically. Right. Basically, if a project were to go bad, and God forbid, you lose all your money, you lose your investors' money, and they want to sue you and bring you up in front of the SEC, you know, the way that I do it is, is I don't have any partners that are like passive, like they just give us money and, and, and that's it. We hold meetings, we eat minutes, we cast votes, we sign the votes, we go on site together, we go to Lowe's together. You know, we are working hard to create sure. the value that yeah. we describe. But if you know, if you're if you're just looking to place your money or to collect people's money, then mm-hmm. you're going to be a syndicator, and you really do need to seek the uh, the counsel of a you know a syndication attorney and make sure that you've sure. got all your your ducks in a row, paper wise, because you you, I mean, you certainly don't want the alternative. You don't want to do something wrong when there's right. that much riding right. on it. Right. Um, and and I want to do syndications. I, you know. Um, one that I've got under contract right now, I likely will make a syndication, even though it doesn't need to be one. It's a small deal, but sure. just to, to do it. And then that's right. just another, um, another tool in my toolbox. Right, right. And then obviously there are aspects about, you know, how big the deal is, as you said, mm-hmm. plus, you know, syndication costs and things like that. So for smaller deals, uh, obviously, you know, joint venture or JV, as people call it, is, is I think the right strategy. And I think what you highlighted that having sort of, you know, everybody at a equal shoulder and doing some active form of, uh, you know, of work is uh, those are some valuable things uh, there, uh, Phil. So awesome. And in this, um, uh, like the assets that uh, you play in, uh, Phil, what is your exit strategy? Is your exit strategy more about, hey, let's just spend two, three years, let's bring in, uh, you know, the NOI and things like that. So are you looking to sell down the line or perhaps do a 1031 exchange into something bigger or the, the play is more like, hey, these are vintage assets. If we own them, we improve them. Once they bring back online, you have a long-term debt place on them. Are you looking to them, maybe hold on to them long-term? Uh, what's your philosophy behind this? So one last parting shot on the syndication versus joint venture thing that I didn't address well is the type of debt you're taking is I mentioned, hey, if it qualifies for agency debt, don't send it to me. So right. for those who, out there who didn't quite catch that or do, do not understand what that means, agency would be your Freddie Mac, your Fannie Mae, it's non-recourse debt. Right. So you do need to have a balance sheet guarantor, aka someone with a net worth greater than your purchase price for non-recourse. Right. Um, but it, you know, it's, it's easier to find that person to sign on non-recourse than recourse, which is the type of funding that we use to get into these ugly deals, Absolutely. which is if the, if you don't pay the mortgage, you are all personally responsible. Right. Yeah. All the weight is on your shoulders. Right. So right. at a certain point, yeah, I know a lot of people that are trying to get in this business and I partner with them and you know, we do these quote unquote small deals for a couple of million up to maybe like five or 6 million. Mm-hmm. But if you're doing 20 million, ugh, you, <laughs> that's, that's serious. it's going to be tough to find three or four of your friends to sign up to $20 million worth of debt. Uh, right. 
So I thought that was worth um, worth mentioning there. Um, but now that I've gotten tangented, sorry, can you repeat the, the question I'm supposed to be? No, I, I was just saying about your exit strategy. Exit, exit, thank you. Yep, yep, yep. So um, a mentor of mine says, do not wait to buy real estate like I did. I mean, I sat on the sidelines flipping houses and, you know, doing stuff that didn't make me any long-term wealth. It made me some money, but not right. wealth for almost a decade. Mm-hmm. Buy real estate and wait. So I don't ever want to sell something that I've purchased. Gotcha. Uh, if you're doing a syndication, you're going to be kind of, it's called internal rate of return. It's how basically, right. you know, you figure out the velocity at which your investor's money mm-hmm. is working. Right. Usually a sale is figured in, or if you get a really great deal, you can refinance the investors out for their whole principal and then they stay on as a small partner or whatever. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't want to sell anything that I currently own ever. Um, I have partners that are of a similar opinion mm-hmm. as you get into bigger deals and more kind of cooks in the kitchen. Sure. You, um, you there know, are different, different forces that to, come into yeah. play. Correct. Yeah. And, and that just, again, it depends on where you're going. Right. Um, you know, the, the issue I have with the folks that are trying to sell every five years, basically they're taking all of their depreciation. And then once that's, you know, used up, they've made a little cash flow, they've got a little appreciation, they roll in 1031 onto the next one. It's kind of exhausting. Um, you know, for me, it's, it's about that passive cash flow or semi-passive cash flow that enables me to do all the other things I want to do with my life. Right, and, right. you know, maybe 20 years from now, if, we still have these assets. Mm-hmm. Maybe I can convince my partners to own or finance them out to the next guy mm-hmm. or the next group um, so that we keep the cash flow. We just don't have any of the headaches anymore. I think that's the best way to do it. But, you know, 1031ing is certainly viable. Um, you know, if you're in a market that's been appreciating like ours has for a while and you own some stuff, yeah, sell it. You know, right. it's probably going to be the highest price you'll get for the next decade. So if you're thinking right. to sell and sell now. Right, right. And, and obviously, as you said, Phil, there are, you know, multiple right answers, right? So you could have a core strategy and also have select projects where you say that, hey, maybe perhaps we'll syndicate some stuff and your project plan calls for, you know, like a sale at the, uh, you know, year five, year seven, something like that. But your core strategy still can be doing what you do exactly and do more of it. And uh, as you said, that you have you know, local community banks debt on it and keep, uh, keep that going. And, uh, you, you know, it, so it can be sort of a happy marriage of uh, both avenues that you do what you're doing now. Plus, you know, as different, uh, you know, opportunities line up, you can syndicate and, you know, perhaps sell down the line. So that, that's so, one, one, uh, you know, I kind of, I kind of got on a, a, a ramble there. So the couple of big projects I have going now, mm-hmm plan is that we've created 30, 40, 50% value in the building, right? Mm -hmm. Over a couple of years, we use up our interest only period with the community banks, which is Mm -hmm. a year or two or three. Um, And then so long as the capital markets are doing well in 2020, 2021, 2022, Mm -hmm. if it's a massive reposition like that, we're Mm -hmm. putting them on agency debt long-term. You know, if we could get, you know, 10 year term, 15 year term, 30 year Mm -hmm. am, awesome. And that's, and then we're keeping them for as long as we can. Absolutely. And when we get towards the end of that long term, then we have a conversation. 
Right. right. You know, if we could deploy the, the money better elsewhere, then maybe we 1031. Um, or we just, you know, the great thing about refinances, as many of you know, but maybe not all of you, is when you so, borrow money, that's not a taxable event. Right. It's all so, tax free. <laughs> you know, and what's so exciting about this business is, um, you know, it, it's cool when you own a single family house and it goes up 3% a year. You're like, sweet. It was 500,000 and now, you know, it's 600,000. Great. But when you, when it's 5 million, <laughs> they're now up to six and a half million, seven million. Yep. It gets a little more exciting. You and your yep. few partners or your double suite <laughs> can, can take out what's relatively a small amount percentage wise of equity. Right. But it's a big chunk of money and it's tax free. Yep. Uh, and yep. that's, that's why I, I kind of, I kind of love this game. Right, right. No, I, those, that's awesome. That's awesome. Good. So, Phil, uh, these are all, you know, v- valuable things you shared today. Uh, please share with your listeners how, uh, you know, how uh, folks can get hold of you and, you know, what exciting things you're looking forward to now. <laughs> cool. So, um, you know, I, like I said, we all started somewhere. I'm happy to talk to folks and to assist if I'm able. Um, you know, we're all busy, but I do like to to find time to connect with a couple people every week and see if I can help them get into, you know, like their first deal. A mentor of mine, Michael Plonk has what he calls the law of the first deal, you know, right. was the case for me. I did one and now all of a sudden I'm doing like, I'm like, Oh, this is, you know, mm-hmm. this is like the first time you're riding your bike, it works <laughs> Keep going. Um, you know, so my website is my name, Phil Capron, P H I L C A P R O N.com. Find me on Facebook, um, the same name. And, uh, those are probably the, the, the best avenues. And, uh, you know, I just, I really appreciate the opportunities car and, um, you know, I wish all of your listeners the best and hope that maybe we can do a deal one of these days when, uh, when we make it up to Baltimore. Right. Awesome. Thank you. And cool. it's been a pleasure having you, Phil. Uh, hopefully we'll have you more again when you have more deals and uh, you know, more news in the works, you know, <laughs> so it's been no, awesome. This was awesome. Thank you. I appreciate awesome. your time. Phil. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Premium Cashflow Real Estate Investing Podcast. Please join us at premiumcashflow.com to sign up for weekly updates, research articles, and more. We will see you again for another great interview with an expert guest.